When Max Marshall arrived on the campus of the College of Charleston in 2018, he hoped to investigate a small-time fraternity Xanax trafficking ring. Instead, he found a homicide, several student deaths, and millions of dollars circulating around the Deep South. He also opened up an elite world hidden to outsiders. Behind the pop culture cliches of Greek life lies one of the major breeding grounds of American power. 80% of Fortune 500 executives, 85% of Supreme Court justices, and all but four presidents since 1825 have been fraternity members. With unprecedented immersion, the book, Among the Bros, a fraternity true crime story, takes readers inside that bubble. Under the live oaks and Spanish moss of Travel and Leisure's most beautiful campus in America, Max Marshall traces several CFC boys' journeys from fraternity pledges to interstate drug traffickers. The result is a true life story of hubris, status, money, drugs, and murder, one that lifts a curtain on an ecstatic and disturbing way of life. With expert pacing and a cool eye, he follows a never-ending party that continues after funerals and mass arrests. We are excited to welcome Max to the podcast today, as we caught up with him right before Thanksgiving in the midst of promotions for the book. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 75, an interview with Max Marshall, author of Among the Bros, a fraternity true crime story. Max Marshall is a writer and journalist Raised in Texas, he attended Columbia University, where he graduated summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa in 2016. He served as a Princeton and Asia Media Fellow in Hanoi, Vietnam, and his work has appeared in GQ, Texas Monthly, Sports Illustrated, and the New York Times. He lives in Austin. So thank you for joining us today, Max. Of course, I'm happy to be here. So let's just dive on in uh, to the background of your book. Um, how did you first get interested in writing about true crime in general? So I did not expect to become an investigative journalist to write about crime. Um, after college, I moved to Hanoi, Vietnam, and I was working as a journalism fellow at the Vietnam News in Hanoi. Um, well, I thought I was a journalism fellow. I was actually editing uh propaganda for the Politburo. It was a government newspaper. But while I was working there, you know, we'd get all these sort of, it was very tourism focused. And I saw a small article in the Vietnam news about a Hollywood director named Jordan Vogt Roberts. He had just made Kong Skull Island, which is a big King Kong movie. Uh, he was 35 and had made a bunch of money. He's got all this attention. And in this article, it said he was selling his house in LA and moving to Vietnam to become the tourism ambassador. And I thought, okay, well, that's kind of an interesting story. Like, why would this guy in his prime, you know, decide to move to Ho Chi Minh City? 
So I pitched GQ's website on like a short article about it. And I went to Saigon, spent a night with him. He took me to his favorite nightclub. And it was just going to be kind of a short write-up about this guy's new life in Saigon. And right before the piece ran, he called me from the hospital. And he had been out at a nightclub, the same nightclub he had taken me to. And he had been attacked by a dozen um, what seemed to be gangsters. They flipped his table. They started kicking him, kicking him in the ribs. Then someone took a, a Hennessy bottle and and smashed his smashed his head. Um, he lost consciousness. He had contusions, hemorrhaging, massive concussion. They actually thought he was going to die for a while. And when he woke up in the hospital, he said, who did this to me? And uh, the police basically told him, it's better you don't look into this. These are very connected people. And I was the only journalist he knew in the country. And so he called me and asked if I would help him solve the case. I had never done anything to do with crime. I'd never investigated anything in my life. But I, you know, I was 22 and, you know, had nothing else going on, really. So I, I said yes. And the, for the next six months, we basically solved the case but i mean it was it took a, <laughs> took a lot of uh investigating but yeah after that i just kind of found myself uh lost in the rush of these investigations and also yeah trying to kind of think about how to tell these stories and and yeah what what goes into it all that's fascinating and i think that article is linked on your website isn't it yeah it is yeah yeah it's still still up there um yeah, I think it's called Attack on Skull Island because his movie was called uh, King Kong Skull Island and they hit him in the skull. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that was my first experience talking to police sources and sort of following drug supply chains and um, looking at camera footage and, you know, developing anonymous sources. And so much of what went into this book started then. And really it was, um, it was actually right when I finished that story that I found this Charleston story. Yeah, so how did that, how did that come up on your radar? So yeah, I'd seen a lot of Xanax flying around when I was in college. I had friends who dealt, I had friends who um, got addicted. You know, it's one of the two drugs, one of two substances that are so addictive you can die of withdrawals. And I didn't know any of this going to college. I thought of it as, you know, something parents took on a plane flight, but it actually was this incredibly popular party drug. And yeah, after doing that Vietnam story, I basically was thinking, okay, how could I write about Xanax on college campuses, kind of warn people younger than me, warn parents about this, but in a way that's not a sort of eat your vegetables, um, you know, trend piece, but maybe as something more of like a page turnery crime story. Because the other question I had, besides why are all these kids doing Xanax, is where is this Xanax coming from? It wasn't coming from Pfizer. It wasn't CVS brand Xanax. You know, it was often chalky, fake Xanax. And I'd been a fraternity. I knew a lot of this stuff was coming through the fraternities. So I I literally Googled. Uh, and I, I want to say this was actually sitting in a cafe in Saigon. I Googled Xanax bust fraternity. And the first result was this Charleston Post and Courier article, great article by uh, Tony um, Bartleman about 
this drug ring and you know it said they were using pledges to ship xanax around the south and um you know they'd gotten caught with an assault rifle and a grenade launcher and i thought this is pretty interesting they said forty-four thousand xanax pills had been confiscated and then i started reporting and i found out that it was actually closer to you know three million pills and the story kind of uh fractaled out of control from there going back to the thought of xanax what do you think it is about that particular drug that is so alluring to these college students I mean, it's interesting, right? Because if you think of the sort of it drug for different generations, and obviously this is speaking, you know, in broad strokes, but, you know, you associate 60s baby boomers with weed and maybe acid, and you associate the 80s with cocaine. Those are very different drugs than an anti-anxiety tranquilizer that was designed for panic attacks and seizures. Um, And I think part of it is, there's just so much anxiety coursing through uh, my generation. And I, yeah, I don't think it's a coincidence that like one of our go-to party drugs is its main effect is making anxiety sort of disappear while you're on it. And of course you wake up and your anxiety rushes back even worse than it was the night before. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then also it's a very effective drug for helping you black out you can mix, you know, a bar of Xanax with four or five Keystone lights. And it's like you had, you know, 12 Keystone lights and you black out. And I think something that surprised a lot of people in my parents' generation is that's sometimes a goal. Like you want to get blackout. And so I think it kind of fits into that culture as well. So once you started digging into this story, was it hard for you to find sources willing to go on the record? Absolutely. I mean, at first, it was basically a total stone wall besides a few defense lawyers. Um, but, you know, you a lot of it is you you gain the trust of a source who then realizes, OK, this person has read all the police files, has talked to enough people that, you know, he he actually has some command of the story, maybe. And uh, also, he's not just looking to write some sort of like hit piece. And I, I think that, that was part of it. And I think part of it honestly was coming from a similar background as a lot of these guys, um, I think was really helpful. But yeah, it was, it was incredibly difficult at first and it took a lot of lucky breaks. I can imagine. I could tell just by reading the story how it kind of unfolded over time that at first, it was a lot of anonymous sources, and then you started getting more and more people that were going on the record. Were yeah, you surprised absolutely. when you um, learned? Yeah, were you surprised when you learned how this group in Charleston was manufacturing Xanax out of these beach houses? That that floored me. Yeah, I mean, I knew from the beginning that kids had their own pill presses, and it wasn't that hard. You know, the advent of the dark web really changed the way drugs are sold on college campuses. And, you know, I knew from experience that, yeah, people could buy Xanax powder online and then it would show up and they could pill press it out. But usually I was more familiar with like sort of a hand crank pill press or sort of smaller scale stuff. Maybe you're making a few hundred pills. But yeah, finding out guys that were making hundreds of thousands and ultimately millions of pills um, at a more industrial scale it was, yeah, that was pretty wild 
Um, and then, yeah, just the the sort of intricacies and the details. I mean, it really was a a fully functioning like industrial drug trafficking network. So I think it's interesting that the main character in this story, KA member Mikey Schmidt, was only a college student for a year. Um, yeah. But he seemed, seemed to remain like this huge part of the fraternity, like in the following years after he left. Do you think it was because of his access to the drugs and everything else? I think that's definitely part of it. I mean, you definitely see in some of these schools, and, the, and this is this goes against every national fraternity bylaw there is, but I've, I've certainly seen it firsthand. You'll see kids, for instance, who go to the community college um, down the road, but functionally are fraternity members. And then you'll also see guys that might be taking a semester off or might have gotten kicked out who are still living in the college town, going to fraternity parties. And so it's not only guys who are, you know, have the drug hookup that are invited back into the house. But I do think, yeah, of course, there's going to be so much status if you're coming in from Atlanta with cartel connected cocaine and, you know, all these, you know, famous rappers and you're going from fraternity house to fraternity house around the South dealing cocaine and Xanax and, you know, like you're kind of bringing the party and, you know, all these people. Yeah, there's there's definitely a lot of status in that. And, and that's not even getting into the amount of money that sort of goes with it as well. I felt like he was a character that was ripped right from a Hollywood script. You you could <laughs> not have made up a more interesting and connected and just mind-boggling character, I feel like. In the yeah, and, and I mean, so much of it, you know... Oh, yeah, <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, just so much of it is also like, you know, he he has lived this absolutely wild life. And he's also, you know, he's the only one from the drug ring that's still in prison. And um, so he's just had so much time to sort of sit and think about this stuff. And he's also just an incredibly charismatic storyteller, um, almost to the point where, you know, you have to He's such a good storyteller. He's so charming. He's that you. There's a reason I had to interview 123 other sources as well, you know, because like there is a I think there's a version of this book where he just tells the story and you just write it down. And it's, you know, this wild ride. And but I was amazed how how often he would tell stories. And then I would, you know, look in the police files and there it was, you know, like he it it is this sort of Hollywood life. And yet like it continued to prove itself as true over and over again. So in the course of your discussions with him through these contraband cell phones and, and all the other ways that you were able to keep in touch with him, do you feel like he has regret over his involvement in all this? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's complicated because I think so many of the primary feelings are, what it was to be betrayed by his best friend, um, what it was to kind of have everyone flip on him and sort of get away with their crimes. And he's the only one serving time for it. Um, and, you know, the book ends with maybe the the recognition, not I wish it, this had never happened, but maybe I wish I had joined SAE and you know, wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But I do think, 
yeah, there's there's definitely a sense of of regret. And it's funny, you know, one thing that was important to me in, in writing the book or I mean, importance is too, too big a word because this was a pretty small thing, all things considered. I felt like fraternities were written about incorrectly in a lot of different ways. And it's one of the things that got me writing this book. But a small thing that I always disliked was people always, when they write about fraternities and sororities, they talk about fraternity men and sorority women. But my experience on campuses is no one says men and women. They always say boys, girls, or kids. And there really is a sense of the people in the story being kids. Like, the older I get, the more I look at an 18-year-old and go like, wow, you were, you know, still in many ways a child. And so I think that's also something Mikey has had so much time to just sit and think about is, you know, he's now in his late 20s looking back on kind of what you did when you're 19. I think we all look back on some things we did when we were 19 and kind of hit our heads in the wall. But his is a, a much more extreme version of that. That's true. Can you tell us about the young man, Patrick Moffley, who ended up murdered as part of his involvement in the Charleston area drug ring? Absolutely. So, yeah, Patrick is sort of the other main character in the book. Um, he also is this kind of larger than life society party figure. Um, his dad is a big time real estate developer, built a lot of homes on Kiowa Island for sort of the, you know, the billionaire set out there. Uh, his mom ran for Congress in South Carolina, was on the Charleston School Board. They're a very well-known family. And he grew up on this sort of uh, palatial horse farm, equestrian farm, on what's literally called Paradise Island, um, off, you know, kind of 30, 40 minutes from, from downtown Charleston. And yeah, the the one of the chapters in the book is just an oral history of Patrick's life. He kind of was this you know, he was known for throwing these, you know, massive 400 person parties out on the, the equestrian farm and uh, jumping off balconies on King Street and breaking his ankle just so he could get a girl's number and, you know, getting in fights in three different continents. He's, you know, he would ski the the Alps and uh, surf in Nicaragua. And he was just like, he was sort of this like party playboy figure but on the first Friday of spring break 2016 at his house a block from campus, he was found murdered with a bullet hole um, in his chest. He was holding a Chipotle napkin to the wound and um, lying on the floor. He was surrounded by hundreds of these fake Xanax pills. And it was basically those pills that he was found surrounded by that led to this whole drug ring being unraveled because the DEA, the FBI, even the Postal Service, let alone Charleston law enforcement and state law enforcement, they all wanted to know where did these pills come from. And turned out his house was a hub in this this drug network. And that's how boys started wearing wires on each other and uh, betraying each other. And ultimately, so much of the the ring sort of fell apart. What really struck me in this story was kind of the attitudes of the boys involved and also the attitudes of their parents that were kind of like, well, we're going to get this taken care of. We've got attorneys. You're not going to get in trouble. I can't get in trouble. There just didn't seem to be a lot of accountability. And it it's almost like it trickled down from the dynasties of some of these families. Like yeah. none of, none of the kids expected that they would get in trouble 
and they didn't think they should get in trouble. It just felt like this whole mentality woven throughout the book in these kind of affluent Southern families that are well-connected. Definitely. Definitely. And I, you know, I think it's interesting and I'm sure you're tired of hearing this name doing a podcast about South Carolina crime, but there is uh, that this book came out the same week as the, you know, the Murdoch book. And uh, some of these kids had the same lawyers as the the Murdoch's did. And so uh, there is this sort of a system of very connected, very powerful South Carolinian defense lawyers that really can get you out of a lot, a, a lot, a lot. And um, I talked to a lot of these lawyers. They're incredibly charming. They're great storytellers. There's a reason they're so good at their job. But when you have this system where you really can get away with so much, it, I do think like in some ways this book is, yeah, it's kind of about the consequence of a life without consequences. Because if you can get away with, you know, a DUI, you know, maybe the next thing you try is selling some weed. And when you get away with selling some weed, maybe the next thing you try selling some Xanax. And when you get away with that, you know, you, you might scale up again. And I did see that over and over again. You also see it in the, the fraternities themselves, you know, the cap alpha order after the whole drug ring got busted, they got kicked off campus in 2016, but they came back in 2012 and SAE never left campus. And so I think there's also, you know, it's, it's in the courts, but it's also in, in college, it's all over. It's like, yeah, you can get away with so much why would you how would you learn something if you don't have to? Exactly. So I was curious reading this book because I know that you were in a fraternity in college and you mentioned that your parents were also part of Greek life. Was it difficult for you to separate yours and your family's experiences from what you report were reporting on in this book? Yeah, I mean, on some level, you don't need to separate them because in, in some ways it's like, this bigger system that you're trying to understand and contextualize. And when you bring to bear your own experience, it can help, you know, connect with interview subjects and, and all the rest. But yeah, I do think there is a bit of separation because I wasn't setting out to write some like anti Greek life screed. I think it's important to like hold both the seduction and destruction of this stuff, right? Like there is an allure to it that I myself found, I when I showed up to college, I didn't plan on joining a fraternity. And, you know, within a month, it was like my whole social world. And so I, it would be dishonest of me to think I could be like this sort of outside finger wagger and be like, you know, oh, these kids, how, how dare they join these systems when I was part of it as well. Um, so yeah, I think it's like, it, it also allowed me to try to be like, okay, well, what is the allure of this stuff? And like, why is it such a resilient system? And um, why even now are my, you know, five closest friends from college, the kids I pledged with? And, um, and, and yeah, so I think in some ways I saw it as like an insider's guide. It's like, okay, I am part of this world and it's a world that's usually closed to outsiders. So how can I try to get it right and show what it's like on the inside? Um, and, you know, it's sort of that like MFA cliche of, uh, you know, when you're in a writing class or something, they say like, uh, show, don't tell, hold a mirror up to what you're seeing. And that's all you're doing. You're just holding a mirror up 
And like the mirror I had happened to be <laughs> smeared with cocaine and all sorts of other things. But, um, but that's, you know, that's the mirror that I found. And I, and I really think it probably helped you make connections with a lot of these sources when they found out your background, because like you said, you weren't coming in as some, like you weren't trying to do a hit piece. You weren't trying to come in and destroy and obliterate an institution. So I, I agree. I think that probably helped you. How I'm curious, how long yeah. did it take you to, from the, re, like finding the story, reporting, going to Charleston, how long did it take you to write this book? I mean, I think I th first started thinking about it in 2018, started really doing the reporting in 2019. And then, um, you know, it, I would say it was like a year and a half of uh, reporting, year and a half of writing and editing, something like that. Um, plus, you know, some extra time thrown in there for on the front end, sort of like getting my bearings in the story. And then on the back end, the sort of like final, you know, edits and fact checking and all of the you know that stuff so yeah i mean it was it's it's basically been my life since 2019 um and it's quite a pretty crazy headspace to spend for four years in um but but yeah it's now it's sort of you know you give up the baby for adoption and people you know take it in different places like people have had such wildly different readings of the book and like that's something i i welcome because i don't want to hold a reader's hand and tell them what to think what do you think a reader's main takeaway from among the bros will be yeah i mean i think it like i said it really varies um and i've seen a lot of different takeaways i think some people it's about that sort of uh consequence of no consequences and the sort of uh like this party that never ends nothing like you know nothing can stop this party murders arrests deaths uh shutdowns and all the rest like the the party goes on and so it's sort of about like the the never ending party of our ruling class i think in other ways it's about um like we were talking about before but the anxiety coursing through this world i think it's interesting that you know these guys whose safety net in life is basically so plush it's a hammock and you could just lie around in that hammock if you wanted to. Um, instead, you're blacking out on uh, anti-anxiety med medication. Um, and I think for some people, it's, you know, a page-turny, twisty crime story um, with crazy characters and um, like all sorts of uh, movie-esque you know, sort of twists and turns. And, you know, I think it could be all of that and, and more or less, or, you know, I think it's been fascinating to see the way all different people read it. I'm, and I, I'm open really to any and all readings. That's, it's not my book anymore. It's the readers. So what are you working on now? Cause I'm sure you're working on something. Yeah. I mean, you know, the sort of uh, book publicity circus is winding down and I think I want to uh, eat a bunch of Thanksgiving food and and go into a coma for the weekend um but, but yeah I'm, I'm working on well first of all a lot of like documentary companies have reached out about doing this documentary forum so I'm taking a lot of meetings about that and then I'm uh I'm slowly working on a, a book proposal for book two about a uh, a Texas oil tycoon 
that's all I'll, I'll say, but we'll, we'll see how it goes. That's great. Well, I'm sure this book has opened even more doors for you um, with all the, the reporting and research you had to do and the writing. So that's really exciting to hear about all that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been a really wild and intense experience and um, I really am incredibly grateful to the, whatever it was, 125 people who, who told me their stories. And then the other people passed me on all the, the court and police documents as well. But like, ultimately a book like this is just consisting almost completely of other people's stories. So it, it took a, it took a lot of bravery for some, some people to tell me some of these stories and I'm, I'm very grateful. I can imagine. And, and I would also, when I was reading it, I kept thinking, how did some of these people agree to talk to him? Like when you, you, you know, <laughs> talking about Mikey's connections in Atlanta and some of those characters at the nightclubs, I really, they just seemed to speak so openly. And so it was, it was very fascinating. I, I mean, I, yeah, I think something I found is like in the first, the first time I found this was with hazing in my own hazing. Is that like if you're outside the bubble, no one will tell you a single word. But once you're inside the bubble, people love to tell these stories because they think they're funny or they think they're crazy or they think there's like some status in them. And so like the closer, you, you know, the sort of deeper you got into the bubble, the more people would be willing to kind of tell their stories often on background. But yeah, there is like I, I could tell so many times when people were telling me like their hazing story or their craziest drug trafficking story or or whatever it was. I was like, oh, you've told this story at a bar 50 times before. Like it was so like not rehearsed, but in a way like you, you they had they had it down. Um, and that's that's also why like the police files and things are so important because you have to balance the sort of like, OK, well, you're a very good storyteller. Um, but but yeah, there is there is this, once you're inside that world, there's actually a lot of pride in these stories, I think. I can see that. So I guess it shouldn't be that, um, it should, I shouldn't be that surprised that these stories came out to you. But when I was reading them, I kept thinking, wow, <laughs> he really, he really managed to network his way into talking to some of these really, really intriguing characters in the whole Atlanta scene, uh, which I thought was cool. It was cool to read all the the places that these guys were traveling to pick up the drugs and distribute them. And oh, and then they headed off to this university, and then it was back to Atlanta. Definitely and it was back to Charleston. Yeah, de yeah, definitely. The sort of like you had like your Georgia schools, your Mississippi schools, your North and South Carolina schools, some Florida, um, Tennessee. It really was like the the whole South, and I do think. Another thing that was really helpful was like, I'm not, I, you know, lived in New York after college, but like, I'm not from New York. I'm from the South. And I think like, just that knowledge that I'm not like the sort of classic, like Brooklyn journalist here to, you know, find toxicity, you know, or whatever. And like, th there's obviously a lot of <laughs> amazing journalists in Brooklyn, but I do think like there is sort of an insider outsider thing that's always going on and like being like, look, like I, like we have LinkedIn connections in common. Like I'm from, from Dallas. Like I do think that uh, that made a difference. Yeah, definitely. Well, I won't keep you any longer. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's been cr a crazy past couple of weeks with uh, doing press for the book. 
Um, but I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast and I will share the link to the book in our show notes so that all of our readers can check it out. Cause I know they're going to be fascinated <laughs> after hearing this conversation. Yeah. They're going to want to know more about all this, but you know, having a, having a student in a SEC school, I found it extremely interesting. So I had some <laughs> questions for her after I read this. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. I imagine this is going to lead to some, some, Thanksgiving or, you know, Christmas dinner table conversations for uh, a lot of families. So that's, I, I think it that's probably will. And and yeah. honestly, right now I'm working on this week's episode is about deaths related to college fraternity and sorority hazing. Oh, wow. And that was really interesting to research. I didn't know it's focused on ones that were in North and South Carolina and it was are you so are you focusing on tucker hips or um, tucker hips is guess, part of it yeah um i mean it, yeah it's basically one one student a year on average so it's in some ways it's much less deadly on the aggregate than like fentanyl overdoses and fraternities or something but it is this just thing that continues to recur and recur and yeah it's fascinating i'm excited to listen to the episode it does. It's and the thing is, like I'm sure you know, it's really hard to connect the dots and prove in a lot of cases that it was related to hazing. Yeah, for one absolutely. thing, because of the wall of science silence, and for another, yeah. because of the way that it happens. It it's not yeah. a from point A to point B kind of instance. There was also a a young man that died at the University of South Carolina in 1980, and he got intoxicated during like the final night of hell week and basically choked on his own vomit. And yeah. it was very hard for his parents to prove that that was connected actually to the university and to the fraternity because of the way yeah. it happened. So, you know, yeah. And, I, yeah I, <laughs> and that's a story that has happened just over and over again. It's so often like the, the hell week, um, like honestly, yeah either i mean there's so many stories like that or somebody will get in a car after a, a pledge event and then get an accident or like, there's also you know, a story a, about that in this episode too yeah so that yeah I mean, that's such a story okay yeah but yeah that's such a common pattern and then it's like yeah how do you show because people imagine it's like oh they got paddled so hard or something that you're but like really often what it is is yeah it's like they they were forced to drink to to a point where it either killed them or put them into a deadly situation um and and yeah I, th I think like it's funny because the the hazing experience and i talk about this book like so much of the hazing experience that students hate is actually the sort of forced uh servitude of you know like cleaning cars picking up food ghost riding homework like being the designated driver three or four nights a week and it's like this full-time job that keeps you out of class um but then it's it's really often just like one or two nights of forced binge drinking that are the most deadly. Um, so yeah, it's fascinating. And everyone's I'm, doing it. So yeah, everyone's yeah. not dying from it. So then it's, yeah, it becomes yeah. really hard to connect it to an, an actual fraternity or school. So that, that's, I think yeah, that's exactly so hard. And uh, to cap it all off, a lot of times legislators are part of the Greek system and they yeah, well, anti-hazing bills passed because they think yeah. they're overstepping the boundaries. So definitely, it, definitely. It's really been interesting it, to research. Um, it's all, it's all connected for sure. 
It is. Uh, but again, thanks yeah. for coming on the podcast today and uh, really enjoyed the book. It's a fascinating look. Uh, our readers are going to check it out in the show notes. And I hope you have a happy Thanksgiving and eat all the the turkey and fixings. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm most, I'm mostly excited for the fixing. So we're about to do some deviled eggs tomorrow, my wife and I. So oh, that's, that's, uh, the Southern, <laughs> that's such exactly. a Southern thing. I swear the deviled oh, yeah. eggs yeah. at the, the yeah. holidays. Yeah. Oh yeah, but it's it's the best. Um, all right, well, thank you so much. A happy Thanksgiving to you as well. And yeah, I really enjoyed this. Oh, thanks a lot. All right, thanks. Bye. Before we wrap up today, I'd like to tell you about a webinar I'm hosting next spring. True crime is more popular than ever thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing next spring, I'll share how to find story ideas, how you can use true crime elements in nonfiction and fiction, where to pitch your own true crime work, and more. You also have the opportunity to send an article outline or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is $45, and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wowwomenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com, Renee Robertson. Thank you so much for those who have already supported me through this platform. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing is provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.